and uh, an old Advent sermon series begin talking about the way in which Matthew quotes the book of Isaiah. And I got really fascinated about, like, why would Matthew do this, right? And he does it multiple times. So uh, the next slide should show, so Matthew 1, which we did last Sunday, Matthew 1, 23 quotes Isaiah 7, 14, right? And so Matthew quotes from Isaiah, look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. So uh, as Christians, we read Matthew and we're like, oh, that's about Jesus, right? But he's quoting Isaiah, which is 800 years earlier, right? So Isaiah is not talking about Jesus. Isaiah is talking about a different child, referencing a different child, which we're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, Matthew 4 so just a few chapters later, Matthew 4 quotes Isaiah 9. So just two chapters later in Isaiah, right? Thus fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet said, and we just heard Mary Lou read it, land of Zebulun, a land of Naphtali along the sea across the Jordan. The people who lived in darkness have seen a great light, and a light has come upon those who lived in the region and in the shadow of death. And then, of course, it goes on to give that very famous passage that we all read during Christmas that makes its way into songs, right? Unto us a child is born, he'll be called Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, right? That comes from this same chapter of Isaiah that Matthew quotes. So I'm going to give you a double context. I want to talk about the context of Isaiah, and then I want to talk about the context when Matthew's writing the gospel, and then I want to say why this might help us living in 2022, why this might be relevant for us. So I want to start in the book of Isaiah. So for those that don't know, um, the kingdom of Israel had 12 tribes, and they got along for a little while, but eventually there was a civil war amongst the tribes, and there was a division. Ten tribes went to the north, and two tribes went to the south. There's a timeline, but I don't think you can see it. But basically, if you look at the divided kingdom right here, it's 931 B.C. when the kingdom of Israel divides. And Isaiah's writing about 50 years later in the 800s, 880 B.C., somewhere around there, right? So you've got the 10 tribes that go north and the two tribes that go south. The two tribes to the south have fewer people, fewer resources, but they do have Jerusalem. They have the temple and they have the line of David which is where the Messiah is supposed to come from. So the southern kingdom has some things going for it. The northern kingdom has more people, more resources, but doesn't have Jerusalem. In Scripture, like in the book of Isaiah and many other Old Testament books, the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. Right. So they get their separate names, the divided kingdom. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. So Isaiah is a prophet to Judah. Uh, and in this case, he's trying to talk to Ahaz, the king of Judah. And here's what's going on. Ahaz is king, but he's young, in his 20s. And it doesn't look good for Judah at this point. Israel is preparing to link with the enemies, uh, Aram. So you've got the nation of Aram, you've got the nation of Israel, and they're going to band together, and they want to come destroy Judah. Ahaz now and everyone else in Judah is trembling. In fact, the Bible describes it as they were shaking like trees in a strong wind. There's no way we can overcome this enemy, right? 
So Ahaz is considering joining forces with a different enemy because, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And Isaiah is telling him not to do it. If you link up with Assyria, they are going to have their hooks into you. You will not be able to be faithful to Yahweh. Don't do it. You need to trust the Lord. You need to trust the Lord. And so this is when Isaiah tells Ahaz, the woman will become pregnant. You are going to name him Emmanuel, God with us. Your lineage will continue. Your children will sit on the throne. You need to have hope. Children represent hope, right? Your line, King Ahaz, will not die with you. Because the woman, most biblical scholars believe, that Isaiah is referencing is in fact Ahaz's wife, who eventually gives birth to Hezekiah, the next king, right? So Isaiah is trying to tell Ahaz, you don't need to use the logic of the world. You don't need to connect with the Assyrians. You don't need to try to link with your enemy to defeat them. God will protect you and preserve your line. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be great. It doesn't go well for Judah always. But in the end, you need to take hope. And this is the child that Isaiah is talking about. It's Hezekiah. It's Ahaz's son. So you would hope that in the midst of this, Ahaz would be like, thank you, Isaiah. I'm going to be hopeful now. I'm going to live faithful to God. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Ahaz doesn't trust Yahweh. So let me show you what the book of Chronicles says about King Ahaz. So this is in 2 Chronicles 28, 1 through 7. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began his reign. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his ancestor David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom that aren't faithful. He even made cast images for the balls, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and made his sons pass through fire. This is an allusion to child sacrifice. So this was a place in the world where other nations would sacrifice children to uh, Baal and to other kinds of foreign gods. And in fact, Ahaz does this in part to try to get strength to defeat his enemies. He doesn't trust God. According to the abominable practices of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel, therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Aram, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people. So Ahaz ends up losing, ends up defeated, and ends up not trusting Yahweh. He, he would rather trust the logic of the world, which is get the strongest military you have and kick butt, which seems counter to the logic of God, especially the logic of peace. But we can't forget, Isaiah, the prophet, has said a son will be born. And hear these words once again from Isaiah chapter 9. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, where there will be justice and righteousness forever. I want you to hear what 2 Chronicles says about Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. 2 Chronicles 29, Hezekiah began his reign when he was 25 years old, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, just as his ancestor David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the temple and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east, and he said to them, Listen to me, Levites. Sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and carry out the faith the filth from this holy place. For our ancestors have been unfaithful and have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. 
They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the dwelling of the Lord and turned their backs. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger may turn away from us. And Hezekiah leads the nation of Judah back to faithfulness. He brings stability and justice and peace. This is the son that Isaiah is referencing and referring to. But let's fast forward now. So now you have Matthew. Matthew lives uh, after Christ's death. He writes, whoever the author is, writes the book of Matthew around 80 AD. Most scholars place it at about 80 AD. So we're talking about eight, 900 years later. Here's Matthew writing down the stories of Jesus, the words and teachings of Jesus, and he's using Isaiah to help him. Like, why? This was my question that drove me to these sermons. Like, why do this, right? Well, to understand, we have to understand what Matthew's context is. Matthew's writing, Jesus has lived, Jesus has taught, Jesus has died. Jesus is now gone. We get the book of Acts. We get the coming of the Holy Spirit. We get the early church. But Rome is still the occupying force. Rome still controls Israel. So Israel doesn't have its own nation. It's not able to do and live as it wishes. And so in 66 AD, after Christ is dead and gone, right? The Jews in Jerusalem rebel. There's a violent rebellion against Rome, and they actually push the Roman army outside of Jerusalem. They get them out of the city. And for four years, Rome lays siege to Jerusalem. And after four years, Rome wins. And they sack Jerusalem, and then as punishment, they destroy the temple, and in fact, loot all of the sacred items from the temple as the Jews have to watch. The violent uprising has failed. Rome is in power. And in fact, Jews and early Christians are then persecuted by various Roman emperors. Right? Matthew is writing in the context of deep despair. The early Christians feel like we've failed. When is God going to set us free from this occupying force? Where's our hope? And so Matthew recalls Hezekiah, or excuse me, Isaiah and Hezekiah and the child of hope when it looked dark for Judah, when they had been defeated by Aram, when it seemed like there would be nothing good to come, Hezekiah is born and he leads them in a new direction. And now here we are filled with despair and he points to the child Jesus, the one who will come and set things right, the eternal Prince of Peace, right? The one who will bring in God's reign. So that even when things look their darkest, first century Christians, God has not given up on you. God is not done acting and living. Christ has been born. Can we follow in Christ's way of peace? So when I put myself in Matthew's shoes, I'm going to make the argument that Matthew sees what the way of violence leads to. What does the way of violence lead to, the way of the world? It leads to further violence and more defeat. And so what does Matthew promote in the midst of this? Is the Christ figure who somehow is able to love even his enemies. Because I am convinced it's not like we have tried the way of Jesus and seen it fail. I would argue we've never actually really tried the way of Jesus. When we do, even in little bits, it brings real peace, lasting peace. 
But this is interesting. So I'm going to go back to Isaiah 9 one more time because I want you to pick something up here, right? There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness. The peace of Christ, the peace we hear about in Scripture, is not the kind of peace that is in my life. So when I think about peace, here's what I think about. I have enough money. I have enough comfort. I have my kids, again, are in bed or something. Uh, I've got my work done, and I can rest. That's what I think about when I think about peace. But the peace of Christ, the peace described in Scripture, is much more like shalom, right? This Hebrew word shalom, which is like restoration. It's making things whole. It's reestablishing justice and righteousness. You cannot have peace without justice. You cannot have peace without righteousness. There is no peace when children continue to be harmed and oppressed. There is no peace when people live in their cars in the middle of a snowstorm. There will be no peace when the inequity between the rich and the poor continues to grow. Peace comes when we embody the love of God, the justice of God, to begin to make the world right, to bring shalom with our very actions. This is why peace is not some passive thing that I have when I don't have work to do. Peace is like an active verb when we put on Christ's flesh and bone and begin to love the world well. Peace happens when homes are built on our land to help house people that need it. Peace comes when we say, yes, Interface Sanctuary, of course we want you close to our building and in our neighborhood. I, just for a minute, I want you to think about the fact that right now, this morning, every person without a home got kicked out of Boise Rescue Mission at 7 a.m., got kicked out of Interface Sanctuary because they can't house them. There's not enough space. You can stay here for the night, both of those shelters, but you can't stay during the day. So at 7 a.m. when it's dumping snow, everyone has to leave. Go find some place to stay. The library, the doorway of a building. There will be no peace so long as that's true. So Interface Sanctuary says, you know what we want? A bigger facility because we can actually house people 24 hours a day. It's large enough here, they don't have to leave. They get to stay here all day long, warm. That's what peace looks like, real peace. So, Matthew's call is a reminder. Like, there was no peace in the land of Judah because they abandoned the way of the Lord. There was no faithfulness and no peace. Still now, Rome occupies us and we have no peace. Maybe it's because we've never really tried the way of Christ. You know, there's a, a picture, I'm sure you've seen it, like a meme. It's a gun holster. There's like a gun in it. And on it, it quotes Matthew chapter 5. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. That's the worldly view of peace. That's how the world conceives of peace. Have enough force to make sure I feel safe. Nothing can hurt me. But love is always a risk. Love is to make oneself vulnerable. It's to open yourself up to disappointment and heartbreak and anger. That's what love looks like. The way of Jesus, the peace that Jesus offers, has never really been attempted because we're so afraid. We're like Ahaz. Give me the biggest gun. But Jesus instead chooses the way of the cross. 
if we can embody even a little bit of that faithfulness and courage, if we can begin to embody that kind of selfless love, then we're going to approach shalom. We're going to approach the peace that God offers. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. If you would please now come past the tithing plate. It's your chance to give back. Put those bulletin inserts in there. I'll see you next week.